There's a great scene in Arthur Conan Doyle's first Sherlock Holmes novel, A Study in Scarlet, where Holmes and Watson, they've just met, and Watson is trying to get a handle on his eccentric yet brilliant new flatmate. Uh, we, he soon learns, what he soon learns is all Sherlock Holmes really cares about, his consuming passion to which he invests all his faculties and time, is crime and crime detection. It's his meat and drink. Sherlock Holmes is a detective. Dr. Watson writes of Holmes, of contemporary literature, philosophy, and politics, he appeared to know next to nothing. My surprise reached a climax, however, when I found, incidentally, that he was ignorant of the, of the Copernican theory and of the composition of the solar system. That any civilized human being in this 19th century should not be aware that the Earth traveled around the Sun appeared to me to be such an extraordinary fact that I could hardly realize it. You appear astonished, Holmes said, smiling at my expression of surprise. Now that I do know it, I shall do my best to forget it. <laughs> to forget it? Holmes replied, depend upon it. There comes a time when for every addition of knowledge, you forget something that you knew before. It is of the highest importance, therefore, not to have useless facts, elbowing out the useful ones. But the solar system, I protested. What the deuce is it to me, he interrupted impatiently. You say that we go around the sun. If we went around the moon, it would not make a penny worth of difference to me or to my work. Holmes is a detective, and the composition of the solar system has nothing to do with crime. The knowledge Sherlock Holmes values revolves around the law, chemistry, and the powers of deduction. My sermon this morning, though it's an exegesis of a 12-verse text of scripture, concerns a particular Christian doctrine. One of the most glorious and important teachings in the whole Bible, it said that by this doctrine the church stands or falls, it's called the doctrine of justification. That's its name. And no matter where you're at this morning, religiously speaking, no matter the baggage or the beliefs you've come with today, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, this sermon is for you. But perhaps you're thinking, justification? What possible bearing can that teaching have on my life? It's like studying the, the mating habits of aardvarks. Want to just elbow out important stuff that's already in my brain, stuff that's of practical importance. Friend, let me tell you why you must understand this biblical teaching. Because justification is the means by which guilty sinners are reconciled to the holy God who created us. The God we've rebelled against in our sin. Justification is the opposite of eternal condemnation. This is no trifling matter. We're not asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin here. This is knowledge that we cannot live without. How can I, a guilty rebel who has risen up in anarchy against my Creator, how can I be reconciled to this holy God? Justification answers that question. So aren't you glad you came to church today? And just by way of clarification, justification actually consists of two things. Sin forgiven, and the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ credited, it's imputed to our spiritually bankrupt accounts. How does that happen? Through faith, through the means, the instrumentality of faith in Jesus alone, faith's object. You said you'll recall James has been insisting to his readers that genuine Christian faith must be evident by obedience. So if we're the sort of Christian who is content to rest with a half-hearted, compromising faith, if we're double-minded Christians with a divided loyalty of soul, then James tells us, he has been telling us, we need to repent. Every believer must be quick to listen and slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. We must get rid of all moral filth and humbly accept the word planted in us, the word of the gospel. Because real Christians don't merely listen to the word and so deceive themselves, we do what it says. If we don't keep a tight rein on our tongues, James says, we deceive ourselves and our religion is worthless. If we discriminate between rich and poor in the church, we become judges with evil thoughts, and we deceive ourselves. We must speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of Christ, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That's the groundwork that James has been laying for our passage this morning. Genuine faith vindicates itself in obedient action. True faith is always marked by obedience, and only such faith, evidenced in works, will bring salvation. James presses that point hard. So hard, in fact, that in verses 12 to 26 of chapter 2, he appears, he appears to contradict the Apostle Paul's insistence that justification comes through faith in Jesus alone. In fact, James doesn't mention Jesus in our passage this morning. Uh, did you know, James actually mentions Jesus' name only twice in the entire letter. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the first one. And then James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. That's it. Which means all mention of our Lord and Savior is now in the past. He doesn't bring up his name ever again in this letter. Moreover, not once does James mention the cross. Not once. He doesn't mention the resurrection. Once. But we know, beloved, that it's only to the cross and resurrection of Jesus that we're saved from our sins and reconciled to God. But that is the stop James. He now writes at length about justification without once mentioning Jesus, his cross, or his resurrection. And what's more, instead of tying justification to faith in Christ, James ties justification to works. Look at James chapter 2, verse 20 and following. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. 
you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous, or justified is the word, for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Over the centuries, oceans of ink have been uh, spilled over the formal contradiction between Paul and James. Without a doubt, Christians have found this passage to be the most confusing passage in the letter. Don Carson notes this, Many contemporary critics, skeptical that God has really spoken in the Bible, think that think the passages are irreconcilable, and that together they demonstrate that from the beginning there were disparate branches of Christianity with distinctive and even mutually contradictory interpretations. No, that's not true. At New City, we have a high, high view of Scripture. We believe that there are no real contradictions between the various writers of the 66 books of the Bible. There are no real contradictions because there is one author behind the whole, the Holy Spirit. Friends, if there's one mistake in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there is one error in the Bible, it didn't come from the God of truth. God does not contradict himself. This is the word of the Lord. And taking the teachings of the Bible as a whole, it's very clear that God brings guilty sinners into a relationship with himself and destines them to eternal life when we believe in his crucified and resurrected son, Jesus the Messiah. Period. It's faith in the person and cross work of Jesus plus nothing which saves the sinner. Salvation is secured only by the death and resurrection of Christ and we receive the benefits of our Savior's cross work and resurrection through the means of faith. Christians are not saved, hear this, because of our faith or on account of our faith but through the means, through the instrumentality of faith. And faith's object, obviously, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our text this morning is really the climax of James' plea for pure and faultless religion. He's mentioned that already. That is, a genuine faith that vindicates itself in obedient action. And James tells us, regardless of how orthodox on a confessional level our faith may be, without works, without deeds, without obedience to God, our faith is no faith at all. It's a dead faith. It's a lifeless sham. It's no better, he says, than the faith of demons. Sure, our theology, it might be bang on, but without deeds, without the work of Christian obedience, we possess a bogus faith that cannot save. Real faith, beloved, is a faith that works. It's the working faith possessed by both Abraham the patriarch, the greatest figure in all of Judaism, and Rahab the prostitute, the despised Gentile outcast, and everyone in between who is a genuine, in a genuine relationship with God through union with his son. What we must see is that what James is combating is a religion that's mere ritual. 
a religion that goes no further than outward show. It's just mere words. That's his main point, and he expresses it three times. Look at verse 17. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20. Faith without deeds is useless. Verse 26. Faith without deeds is dead. That's his main point. Where the Apostle Paul denies any saving value to pre-conversion works, James pleads for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. Which means, brothers and sisters, this is a test. Each of us today must analyze not just the orthodoxy of our confession, but the works-producing, obedient life that inevitably characterizes genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So look at your bulletins. Point number one, very blunt, very biblical. Faith without works cannot save. And James starts with verse, verse 14 with a question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So there it is, in all its starkness. That's what the sermon is about today. Can a workless faith save? Or is it deficient by its very nature and so can't save anybody? And in verses 15 and 16, James considers the shocking example of a person who claims to have faith that saves, but who refuses to help another believer in their time of need. Look at verse 15. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Imagine our brother Nick Copeland coming to you, cap in hand, saying, Brother, sister, I'm going through a real rough patch right now. Uh, I lost my job. EI has run out. I'm unemployed. I don't have enough money for food. And my family needs clothes. Can you imagine responding as a Christian, Nick, go in the peace of God, brother. May he supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Keep warm, brother, and be well fed. But that would be absolutely scandalous. Can you imagine saying that? What about the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. That's a prayer request Christians offer up to our Heavenly Father. And the way that God answers that prayer isn't by miraculously teleporting food from heaven onto our dinner plate. If a Christian needs daily food, God's normal way of fulfilling this petition is through His people as they share with their brothers and sisters in need. We're united to Jesus Christ. It's the least that we can do. The, the Christian, quote-unquote, in verse 16, fully recognizes and verbally acknowledges that the, the brother or sister is in need, but they don't lift a finger to help them. They leave them in their nakedness and their hunger while pronouncing a benediction upon them. Go in peace. Go in the peace of God. May God himself undertake for you. But I certainly have no intention of being God's agent in this matter. So you see, his piously intoned benediction is functioning sort of as a religious cover for his failure to act. His faith is a sham. What good is it, James asks? 
What does it profit? Can that kind of faith be a saving faith? Is this person a Christian? No. They're not a Christian. Their faith is false. They've deceived themselves. I don't have time to unpack it, but let's read what Jesus says concerning this very thing in Matthew 25, 31. This is on page 994, if you're using our church Bibles. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, page 994. Jesus says, speaking of himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or eating clothes or, or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. James chapter 2, verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. A professing Christian who refuses to help a Christian in their need cannot be a saved person. Just as pious words without actions profit the poor person nothing, so faith without works profits the believer nothing. Christian, do you see a way that you could, that you can minister to a brother or a sister here at New City that would require toil? and sacrifice, much effort, time, discipline, money. 
Don't deny yourself the blessing. If you help the very least of your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, you're doing it for Jesus. But if we can't be bothered to help a believer in need, if instead of faith that works, we start off pious platitudes, our faith is a sham. It's a bogus faith. It's a dead faith. It's merely, it's merely faith alone. A deceiving faith which does not save. And those necessary works aren't just charitable works to hungry, ill-clothed Christians down on their luck. This is an all-round Christian obedience. It's a life characterized by working faith, a working faith, as James makes clear in our second point with the Old Testament examples of Abraham and Rahab. So to point number two in your bulletins, despite allegations to the contrary, faith and works are inseparable. Verses 18 through 26. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. If we're in the market for a new car, one of the ways that we can either save a lot of money, or on the other hand, spend some serious cash, is in the options department. Right? Uh, whenever we see a car commercial, where the price of the vehicle is blazoned across the billboard or the screen, that's always the bare bones model. That low, low price. For that low, low price, we get a car with a motor and four tires, seats, a gas tank, and that's about it. Any amenities which make driving tolerable are all optional extras for which we pay through the nose. So, if we're in the market for a new car, we're not just swimming in cash, we ask ourselves, do I really need heated seats? I mean, they're awesome, but do I need them? Do I really need a sunroof? I would like one, but I don't. Do I need it? Those things are nice. They're not essential. They're optional. Beloved, faith and works are not optional gifts which a Christian may or may not have. Our understanding of the new birth is terribly, terribly warped if we can think, well, some Christians have faith, other Christians have works. No, faith and works are part of the same base model salvation package. They're like the motor and tires. A faith that works, that's what it is. Motor and tires. If you don't have a motor and tires, you don't have a car, friend. And if you don't have a faith that works, you don't have pure and faultless religion. What James is teaching in verse 18 is this. You say you have faith. How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? Genuine biblical faith inevitably will be characterized by works. I will show you my faith by my good deeds. That's what he said. Which is another way of saying good doctrine by itself is insufficient. I mean, after all, even the demons in hell are monotheists. Look at verse 19. You, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, what's required here is a faith that moves beyond the faith of demons. Is that your faith, Christian? Is your faith distinguishable from the faith of demons? I, mean, I pray it is. Uh, you, you, might, you might be a five-point Calvinist 
with your eschatology worked out for the last week of Daniel 9, and your ecclesiology, the enemy of Mark Dever. But if you have a workless faith, then the demons of hell can match your theology point for point. The demons of hell tremble at the truth of the same doctrine that you believe, and yet they remain condemned. What's required is a faith that works. What's required is faith like the patriarch Abraham and faith like Rahab, the prostitute. And now James introduces the subject that will occupy the rest of the chapter. Things shift into high gear at this point in the city. And I've, I've done my very best, God's grace assisting me, to lay this out in as easy and as accessible a way as I know how. But we're going to have to pay close attention to these last six verses. This is glorious stuff, but it's dense. Verse 20. You foolish person. That's to say, you sinner, living in moral error, with sin-blinded faculties. You foolish person. Do you want evidence? Do you want biblical evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And so James appeals to the greatest figure in Judaism, Abraham. Verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous or justified for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? <clears throat> now, if we're going to go off the rails interpreting what James is teaching, it's going to be right here. Uh, bold as brass. James writes something which seems, it seems to contradict the Apostle Paul. According to James, it was Abraham's action of willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac that justified him in God's eyes. Abraham was justified for something he did, a work, not through faith alone, which seems to contradict a text like Romans 4. Two to four. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He writes this. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to anyone who works, their wages are not credited to them as a gift, but as an obligation. James 2, 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did, literally justified by works, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Or skip ahead to verse 24. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous, justified, for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Don't, I, folks, I don't want you to worry. There's a very, very easy explanation for all of this. But what we need to understand, and I've set this out for you in the sermon notes, is that Paul and James are using the term justify in different senses, and each man has biblical warrant for doing so. Justification, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, refers to how a person gets into a relationship with God. It's through the means of faith alone. In Christ alone, faith's object. Not works, not deeds. When Paul speaks of justification, he means the initial declaration of a sinner's innocence before God. 
that last day judgment verdict, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, that judgment verdict is brought forward to the present day. And Christians here and now are declared righteous by God. It's a legal declaration, it's forensic. So in Paul's usage, in Paul's usage, I was justified 25 years ago. When were you justified? Have you been justified? Sin forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you, credit to your spiritually bankrupt account. Have you been justified through faith in Jesus Christ? I'll just give, uh, in James though, James takes a different approach. In James, justification means to vindicate at the last judgment before God and then also before other people. It's a future vindication. And that's a force the word often has in Judaism. I'll just give us one example from Matthew 12, 35. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them. And evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in them. But I tell you, Jesus says, <clears throat> that people will have to give an account on the last, on the day of judgment, for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. What all this means is that when Paul and James refer to the sinner's righteous standing before God, Paul is focused on the initial reception of that status, while James is focusing on the way that status is vindicated before God and other human beings on the final day, on the day of judgment. Likewise, in Romans and Galatians, Paul uses Abraham as an example of faith proving initial justification, while James uses Abraham to refer to final eschatological justification. And that's really the interpretive key to the whole passage. If we understand that, and that the faith James often speaks of in this text is bogus, not a genuine faith, then we're not going to run into any problems. There's no, there is no contradiction. It's still a dense text, but there's no contradiction between James and Paul. So, verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered, or having offered, his son Isaac on the altar? The sacrifice of Isaac takes place in Genesis chapter 22. Josh read us that text earlier. You'll see why in a moment, but it's important we keep the historical chronology in Abraham's life in mind when we read this. That happens in Genesis chapter 22. James is saying, the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, this is one of those works that was instrumental in Abraham's final justification. This event was typical of his whole life of obedience. In Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac, we see a working faith. James is not, he's not saying, the sacrifice of Isaac is the moment when Abraham, in the sense that Paul uses the term, was justified. When Abraham was about to kill his own son, in an obedience to God's command, that was the moment that God declared the patriarch to be justified, to be righteous. No, 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 no. Keep the chronology in mind. Abraham had already...
already being declared to be righteous by God seven chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Years before, Josh read us that text too. Look at Genesis 15, 6. This comes before Genesis 22. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. By zeroing in on the sacrifice of Isaac in chapter 22, James is zeroing in on an experience of Abraham's life years after God reckoned Abraham's faith as if it were righteousness. That's super important. It's not that Abraham gained a right relationship with God through works, but that his willingness to express his faith through obedience vindicated his claim to faith. Abraham's faith was real. Abraham's faith was a working faith. Just look at what the patriarch was prepared to do in Genesis chapter 22, years after God considered his faith as righteousness in chapter 15. He was prepared to offer up in sacrifice his only son to God, the son of promise. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse 19, writes that Abraham believed God was going to raise his son Isaac from the dead. Did you catch in the, in the text in Genesis 22, Abraham said to his servant, we're going to go up, me and the boy are going to go up the mountain, and then we're going to come back. The author of Hebrews says that the patriarch believed God's promise so much that actually he thought God was going to raise him from the dead. That was what was going to happen. God would raise Isaac from the dead. He was going to sacrifice him and he would raise his dead body to life. That's faith, beloved. That's a working faith if there ever was a working faith. Verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete or perfect by what he did. It wasn't speculative faith, a mental faith, a passive faith, the sort of faith that quotes pious platitudes like, go in the peace of God, Nick, and be filled with food. May your nakedness be clothed. <laughs> no, Abraham's, Abraham's faith was an active force of obedience. His faith was constantly working. It was working along with his deeds. Abraham had a faith that was made complete by works. It was perfected. It was matured. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled. It was given its ultimate significance. That says, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. Specifically in this context, Abraham believed that God would give him many descendants. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, Genesis 15.6 finds its ultimate significance and meaning in an event which typifies Abraham's whole life of obedience. That day, when Abraham was prepared on God's order to kill his beloved son, his only son, the son for whom God had promised Abraham his descendants would come, and through whom the whole world would be blessed. Through whom would come Jesus Christ, the one who would crush the serpent's head. That was what was at stake in Abraham's obedience. That initial declaration of right standing with God on the basis of faith in Genesis 15, 6 was fully validated and scripture was fulfilled by the event in Genesis 22, which showed Abraham's faith was working. It was an obedient faith. In other words, Abraham's works in Genesis 22 revealed the true character of his faith, a faith God already credited as righteousness back in chapter 15. If we bear the chronology in mind, it's perfectly simple. It makes perfect sense. 
Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous or justified, vindicated before God and men on the day of judgment by what they do, not by faith alone. That, that expression, faith alone, sola fide, that's very, that was a Reformation rally cry of the Protestant church, and rightly so, it's very famous, it said, we're justified by faith alone. A sinner can enter into a relationship with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. But the ultimate vindication of that relationship takes into account the works true faith inevitably produce. Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute, going to the other end of the spectrum now in a sense, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. See, Rahab, of course, differs from Father Abraham in almost every respect. Uh, whereas Abraham was a wealthy, moral male, the father of the Jewish nation and a major figure in society, Rahab was probably a poor, immoral, female outcast of the Canaanite nation and a minor figure in her society. They're two ends of the spectrum, but just like Abraham, Rahab was also justified by works. Both of these Old Testament characters became exemplars of faith because of their deeds. The picture of Abraham for being willing to sacrifice his son, and Rahab the prostitute for her willingness to hide the Israelite spies. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. <clears throat> Beloved, our faith in Jesus Christ is dead without works to fill it with life. Here then is the final answer to the question first raised in chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? No. It's only the shell of faith. It's the corpse of faith. It's merely faith alone, the faith of demons. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has revealed His truth to us this day, and He's presented each of us with a test. At this point, we all must ask ourselves, and with this I'll close, is my faith producing deeds of obedience to the will of God? Is my faith genuine? Do I have a faith that works? Or do I possess merely faith alone? Amen.